This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm your host, Molly Stillman. And this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most, faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Mike Gibson. Mike earned a scholarship to Cal Berkeley for football and played two years before he was eventually drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles in 2008. He played a total of six years in the NFL for the Eagles, the Seattle Seahawks, and the Arizona Cardinals. In his third year, he suffered an injury and shortly after was addicted to prescription painkillers. He started at five milligrams of Vicodin, and by the time he finished his career, he was taking a minimum of 300 milligrams of Oxycontin daily. He eventually retired, and afterwards, he became a sheriff's deputy, completing his credentials as class president abusing Oxycontin and Adderall the entire duration. He was a deputy for under a year before getting asked to resign for his unhealthy habits. This setback turned him to becoming addicted to stronger substances such as heroin and methamphetamines. After going in and out of rehab six times in his last session, Mike made a breakthrough and has been sober for over five years. He currently works as the community outreach coordinator for the Mental Health Center of San Diego. Mike's story is incredibly powerful and really, really inspirational. I learned so much about him and his battle with substance abuse and mental health, but most importantly, how he has overcome that. And his testimony is going to blow you away. I was really just encouraged to hear the story of somebody who, you know, at one time would have seemed like he'd had it all together. He was a you know player in the NFL and he was doing well and he was married. And it just really inspires me to see how he has taken what could have been a really destructive time in his life and he could have let that define him and instead he is defining it and he is helping and impacting so many others because of it. I know you're going to love this conversation so without further ado on to my chat with Mike Gibson. Well, today is a very exciting day because this is a, I probably, I don't know, I've had, uh, well, let's see, 340 some guests on the show over the last six and a half years. And, uh, but you are probably my first NFL, former NFL player. So that's kind of an exciting day. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. So I know we just, we're just going to like get that stuff off the, okay. So like you played in the NFL. Um, I'm a Browns fan on what level do you judge me for that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't judge you actually. it, It says a lot about you and your character. Okay. In, in terms of your quality. Thank you. It's thank you. I am. I, you know, I just like to tell people that I'm a Browns fan so that I could show them that I've lived a life of pain and suffering. Um, that's what I, I like to say. Um, but that's, that's a very, like, that's a really good, cause most of the time the two reactions I get are like, you're not from Ohio. And I'm like, I know. Like, so why would you choose this life? <laughs> 
with the two. Now, my dad, my dad is from Cleveland. So basically, like I came out of the womb and my dad like slapped a Kosar jersey on me. And that was basically the life I've lived uh, ever since. So but yeah, so I've uh, I'm, I'm just always curious and I've always wanted to like ask somebody who has like played in the NFL and like knows how terrible the Browns historically are from the inside <laughs> to be like, do you judge me? Or do you yeah. think that I'm just a, a really loyal person? <laughs> no, a, a very loyal and patient person. Very loyal and patient. <laughs> very loyal yeah. and patient. The If I had a nickel for every time I've said the, the term, you know what? I think this is our year and been wrong, I would be, I would be very rich in any event. Uh, well, Mike, I'm so excited to have you here. And obviously there's so much more about you than the fact that you played in the NFL and, um, you are the work that you are doing, the advocacy work for your, you are doing for those in recovery and with mental health is incredible. So I want you to tell us your story. So give us the Mike 101, who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so my name is Mike Gibson. I'm the uh, community outreach coordinator for um, a facility here in San Diego called the Mental Health Center of San Diego. We are a a crisis residential uh, post hospitalization and outpatient program. You know, a long program, seven to nine months, and uh, you know, taking people like myself that are struggling with their mental health um, and, and really get to work with them at that. Uh, that ground level, you know, kind of that that base level when they first are struggling at most with their mental health and um, kind of ease that, ease that transition over the next, you know, seven to nine months and integrate it back into society and, you know, progressing and working towards becoming a productive member of society so they don't ever have to do it again. Yeah. So how, what led you to this place? I mean, you, did you grow up in California? I did. Born and raised in Napa, California. Okay. And so you obviously, you started playing football at a young age. You ended up playing at uh, Cal Berkeley and were drafted um, in 2008 to the Eagles, correct? Philadelphia Eagles. All right. All right. Yep. See, I did my homework. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so you... One, I mean, I'm kind of thinking just because I, I, I'm always interested in the backstories of how people get to this point where, you know, you you'd had this kind of breaking point. But, you know, you, you think about being a kid like I have a seven year old son who has big dreams of playing, you know, basketball at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My sweet, skinny legged redheaded son who's probably not going to be very tall. Maybe he will be. He's very good at basketball at the age of seven. Like, you know, he's very good for his age, but he is just like, I'm going to play basketball Carolina and then I'm going to play in the NBA. And like, that's the thing that he's going to do. Who knows? Who knows what could happen? Um, but the reality is, is the odds of that are pretty slim. But you, you know, I'm always fascinated by people who, because, you know, did you just grow up as a kid and dream of playing, you know, football in college and football, you know, playing in the NFL? Was that like always a life dream or did that just kind of happen because you were good at it? Um, So for me, being from Napa, California, small town, you know, at the time growing up, it's gotten a lot bigger now. But at the time growing up, you know, you're looking at 65,000 people within the whole county. So it's not like this. Uh, it's not Los Angeles. It's not San Diego, um, where I currently reside. It's not like this hotbed for um, athleticism, right? right. Um, a lot of good athletes in the area. But for me, like I, I had an older brother who's two years old. I have an older brother that's two years older than me. 
and watching him play football from I was old, I was six years old. He was eight at the time. You couldn't play till you were eight years old. But I was always like a chunkier, heavier set kid, right? Which ended up. Oh, well, we can talk about that too. Is like the struggle with my mental health from a very young age. Mm. But for me, my grandmother, she's born and raised in Texas, right? She was a Cowboys fan. Would watch the Cowboys. And for I was an infant, right? My grandma would say whenever they turned off the TV turn off Monday night football, I would start crying. No, um, that's how my son no. is with basketball. He's so sad. The basketball season's over. <laughs> he just sobbed, yeah. sobbed after his right? last game. So, <laughs> yeah. So for me, I'm like, well, maybe I would like, now that I look back, I'm like, maybe I was born to do this. I, I have no idea. Right. Um, I just know for me, uh, football was something that I wanted to do. It was used for something to escape. You know, it, it's a lot of the, mental health struggles that I did have at a very early age. You know, my, my family was a blue collar working family who struggled with a lot of things in a very wealthy community and sports were a way for me to kind of get out of myself. The beautiful thing about sports is nobody cares about your background. Nobody cares about, you know, uh, financially where you live, what type of house you live in. If you're good and you can ball, you can ball. Yeah. And that, that's what your teammates care about the most. So sports for me was a way to kind of get out of myself, um, get out of what was going on, you know, the background noise and, you know, allowed me to just go out there and be who I was and be free. Right. Right. Okay. So you, I, I would love for you to unpack that a little bit about talking about some of those mental health struggles from an early age. Cause I know obviously this is a thing that you've really advocated for in adulthood, but now having kind of that hindsight of, wow, this really started for me at an early age, but what was it for you that you were really wrestling with as a kid that maybe at the time you didn't like nobody gave you the the vocabulary to really be able to understand and articulate oh this is what's going on but now looking back you're like oh that that's exactly what was happening yeah i mean for for me i was always like i said i was always like the short stocky kid short fat kid you know when i when i was 8 years old my brother was 2 years older than me like i said like I'd have to play against him and his friends because I was so big, you know, being around, you know, other friends that were physically different than I was. And I got made fun of a lot, mm. you know, and and not realizing what that even still how that affects me to this day. You know, something uh, getting made fun of in a group to where I'm, you know, I'm eight years old, nine years old, walking home, you know, two, three miles at three in the morning just so I can get away from you know, that environment. Cause I was getting made fun of so much, yeah. just get up and walk away, mm. you know, um, different time now than compared to then. Right. Like there was no cell phones back then. I couldn't <laughs> text mom and dad, you know what I mean? It's like, I didn't have that disposal in my pocket. There was no Uber. Yeah. You know, I was like, yeah, if you want to, if you wanted to go home, you got to get up and walk, right. You know, or get on your bike and ride your bike across town. So, and then, uh, you know, just financially, my family was so much different than everybody else. You know, like I, I didn't have the cool shoes that everybody wanted. Like now I kind of have a shoe thing, right? Where I see a pair of shoes that I, that somebody was wearing for basketball because I play basketball too. Somebody's wearing, you know, a pair of Jordans or, you know, Nike phone posits were the big. So now when I see a pair that I couldn't afford when I was a kid, you know, I go out and buy those because it's something that I don't know if it's making up for something else that I, yeah. that I didn't get as a child, but you know, and, and 
how that affects today, you know, I, I know one thing that's common among males is there's uncommon among males is talking about like body dysmorphia. Mm. You know, it's kind of a, there's a stigma surrounding it, but men struggle with it too. Oh yeah. I, I think, you know, all, all genders struggle with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just real quick while you were talking about shoes, it made me think of when I was a kid, I really wanted, what were they? It was the Nike with the pump and it would like pump up your shoe. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like the air. Yeah, the Reebok pumps. The Reebok pumps. The, yeah, it's the Reebok yeah. pumps. Yeah, I really yeah. wanted those. I don't know why, but I was like, I, I want to be able to pump my shoe up. And then it reminds yeah. me of um that there was a, this was like a SNL sketch, like with, uh, I think it was Chris Rock. Um, or maybe it was Eddie Murphy. No, I think it's Chris Rock. And, um, and this is like early nineties SNL where they did a Thanksgiving day sketch about, uh, it was like a pump it Turkey and you could like, it was like the Nike or a Reebok like pump, but you could pump your Turkey up. Um, anyway, uh, quick digression. <laughs> that was where my mind went for a second was like, what was the shoe I really wanted as a kid? Oh yeah. Those ones with the pumps. Um, right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think to, to, to go back to what you were saying, and I think is 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 a really important conversation uh, piece to this is you're right. Men, abs- there isn't enough talk about the body image things that men struggle with. And the, you know, there's obviously all these things and all this conversation around women and their bodies. And, and, you know, when women are struggling with body image issues and, um, and all those kinds of things, but men absolutely struggle with that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there's always like the talk about like dad bods and, you know, you know, just stuff like that, that just, we don't realize how harmful that, that can actually be. But then for a man to, to say out loud, Hey, this is a thing I'm struggling with then comes across as, Oh, well, like almost like weakness. Um, when that's not the case at all, it's just being honest about, Hey, this is where I am. This is what I'm struggling with as somebody who, well, okay. So I I have a question, but I want to kind of get work up to it because I think it's an important piece of this is, you know, knowing that, you know, then you, you went into the NFL and uh, tell your story of kind of how you got to where you are now, where you you were in the NFL, you were in this, you know, in there for six years. And, you know, for a lot of people, people would think like, oh, that's you're you've you've reached it. You've made it. You've peaked like you're 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 living the dream, like millions of kids dream of being in the in the NFL. But, you know, in your third year something happened and that kind of began this, this downfall for you. Can you share that story? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, um, so for me, I mean, I truly was living the dream, right? This is something I wanted to do from the time that I was eight years old, you know, even younger. Right. And, and, uh, nothing was going to stop me from achieving that. Right. So like, I, I didn't go to parties in high school. I, I didn't drink, do drugs. I didn't go out. And it's not, it's not because, you know, my, like I have my nose up in the air or anything like that. It was just something that I, I've really wanted to do. And I really wanted to try to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, so realizing now, like looking back, right. I had a lot of insecurities and, um, using substances to cover that up. Right. It, it's, I, when I first got to Berkeley, I was a junior college transfer. So in order to fit in and, and kind of open up and cause I'm a very, once you get to know me, I'm a very outgoing person, but with social anxieties and stuff like that, it was easy to have a few drinks and change who I was. Mm. Right. And so looking back on it now, like that's, 
I look back and see, you know, some of those tendencies. So essentially when I was in Seattle, um, I had a subluxation of my hip, Mm. uh, you know, the hip kind of pops out and then pops back in and was just getting prescribed medication, you know, uh, prescription pain medication didn't, um, didn't abuse it, took it as prescribed as I was told and continued to take it and took it for the whole season. Right. I I was always in a position to where, like, I always felt like I was going to get cut. Um, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is yes, we are living out our dream, but we get paid weekly, you know, right. It's, it's a good amount. Of money. I'm not saying that it's not right, but there's the, the stress of where am I going to be next week? You know, and there's only a small percentage of the team, you know, one that has their money guaranteed, or they're not really tripping on where they're going to be at next week. Right. So, um, there's 25 guys or more on a roster that are, you know, every single Tuesday freak out. Mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Right. So for me, taking that medication allowed me to stay on the field, allowed me to keep practicing. Cause once you stop practicing, once you stop performing on the field, you know, it, the, the league is very cutthroat. You hear it over and over and over again. Yep. And uh, so it's a, what have you done for me now? Or what have you done for me lately? Right. And if you haven't done anything, then they're very quick to get rid of you and replace you. Yeah. Um, so for me, I was going to do anything. I, I did what I was told and then ended up, there's this whole confusing area. We had a lockout um, at the time. So I went home to go to my like personal doctor and got prescription pain medication from him. Lockout ended. I um, was still taking it as prescribed. Ended up, uh, lockout ended. I went to the team, showed him my prescription and uh, got drug tested, knew I was going to test positive. Right. But I was cool because the team had my information. Well, the prescription that I had gotten was 31 days old and Mm. they mandate that your prescription be 30 days or less. And, um, so I ended up getting thrown in the drug program and, uh, that's where I understood now. So in, in recovery, we talk about the phenomenon of craving, right? You can stop taking the substance, but you just, it's all your mind can think about. Right. And, um, having people around me that were using, you know, the same substances at the same time. And I was in pain and I couldn't take it. So kind of like a double-edged sword here. Yeah. But I still was out there performing, still practicing, still playing, um, but couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, so I put in an appeal, ended up, uh, my appeal ended up going through and I got out of the drug program. And at that point, you know, I went to one of my teammates said, Hey man, I'm in pain. And he gave me a little blue pill and it was, uh, you know, an Oxycontin 30 milligram. I took it, threw up and I fell in love. And for there, for me at that point, it had turned from something that I needed to use for pain as something to cover up for my stress, um, kind of the mental health issues that I was going through. And then eventually led me to become chemically dependent on the substance. Right. So in my last two years uh, of playing, you know, I was taking 30 of those a day, mm. 300 milligrams of Oxycontin breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I had a routine, you know, if I went in and we're playing a game and it's halftime and I'm not really doing much, I'd go in there, grab a handful, throw them in my mouth and go out there and chill on the sideline. Um, mm. Kind of fast forward, you know, um, I ended up retiring and I just got tired of kind of busting my butt and not really getting rewarded for it. You know, uh, I felt like there was like, I had done more and people that had done less were getting paid more. 
And, uh, you know, I was always there. I always practiced. I always was there for the games. I was always on time, never late, uh, never got in any trouble. And, um, you know, so I just said, you know what, I'm going to retire. There was a little stint in there where I was a deputy sheriff in Napa County. Yeah. So, but I ended up uh, leaving that job after like 11 and a half months between there and then the corrections facility as well. From that point on, I mean, it's, it's, I've really lost my sense of purpose. I didn't know um, what I was going to do at that point. You know, the NFL is very like, once you're out of it, like once you're out of the league, you kind of just lose touch with everybody. Yeah. You know, so I was with, and and a lot of that was probably due to me, right? Like, I don't want to hit this person up and end up bugging them. You know, I don't want to be like, and I still have those feelings today, right? There's certain individuals that, you know, are retired or they're, you know, they're still playing. And I'm like, I'm going to text them and see how they're doing. Oh, wait, you know, I'm like, I don't want to bug them. I don't want to, you know, become a nuisance, right? Or be annoying, you know, when in, when in reality, it's probably just me in my head, right? Making a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. And um, yeah, so really lost my sense of purpose. You know, I, I did have, you know, my family didn't really know what was going on. Friends didn't know what was going on. They just saw this downhill spiral of, you know, depression, anxiety, what they now now is substance abuse too, right? And from that point on, like I started using different substances, you know, to kind of to get out of myself and, you know, like I said, change the way that I feel. Right. Um, one thing that we, one thing that I noticed today, um, you know, 99% of people that come through either, you know, our mental health program or a substance abuse program struggle with something, um, mental health, the alcohol and the drugs is just a symptom. Right. Right. So oh, absolutely. Right. So for me, the depression, anxiety, taking an outside substance changed the way that I felt. And I liked that person you know, because it didn't make me feel the way that I was feeling. So that's where for me, continuing to abuse substances, right? Like my lack of purpose, what am I going to do instead of being proactive and doing something positive with it? My lack of coping skills turned it into something negative. And and for me, you know, over the course of the next, you know, four or five years, you know, substance abuse, you know, like went from prescription pain medication to, you know, to heroin, um, to crystal meth, to whatever I could get my hands on. You know, mm-hmm. for me, I was known as what they call a garbage can addict. It doesn't matter what you got. I want it and I want all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, six treatment centers later, September 25th, 2017 was the, when I went to the treatment for the last time. And I went to an all men's faith-based program in the middle of nowhere, San Diego, generators and well water. And I spent four months up there. Wow. Uh, no cell phone, no nothing. And, uh, you know, at the time, all I had was good insurance that I still had left over from the NFL. Yeah. You know, I couldn't get a bank account. I, you know, I'd lost my home in Napa. I'd lost all my cars, my relationships with my family. I was going through a divorce. We're still together to this day. Thank goodness. Right. Wow. Um, but, but at the time it was, I mean, I, I literally had, I had two trash bags, one full of shoes <laughs> and one full of clothes. That was literally literally all that I had, you know, um, it's an old beat up cell phone. That's about it. Wow. I, well, I mean, one, I thank you for your vulnerability and sharing all of that. And I think that you bring up a couple of really interesting points, but it was interesting to hear the way that you kind of, I don't know, broke it down in some ways, because 
I'd always kind of heard tell of uh, guys in the NFL or the NBA or, um, you know, any kind of professional sport, even Olympians, things like that, that once they retire from that thing or they they get injured and they're, it's a career ending injury or something like that, and they're back in the quote unquote real world and they have to figure out like what to do, it becomes this identity crisis because all of a sudden they don't have this like this thing that they were just, that was what their identity was, was based in. And so it's, I mean, you hear all the time about, you know, especially like NFL guys, they get out of the NFL and then they like blow all their money and then they end up like bankrupt. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, there's, you hear, so it's really interesting to hear how you kind of broke that down, um, in a, in a way that it's like, oh yeah, I mean, I totally get it. I mean, I was, you know, shocking wasn't in the NFL. Um, but you know, a part of my own story was at a very low mental health uh, point in my life. I received an inheritance that I did not know I was going to receive. And guess what happened? It was all gone very quickly. Um, you know, and so, uh, and I had to reach my own rock bottom substance abuse. Wasn't my personal vice, uh, but fi- like my financial things and all, were all tied into my my mental health and things like that. And I, I like you said, I, I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the coping mechanisms. And so my coping mechanism was like, oh, I'm going to go spend money on this thing. And I never did buy myself the, the shoes with the pumps, but that's because they didn't exist anymore. But I probably would have. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I really, uh, you know, and I also just for some context and perspective. So I grew up um, the child of two uh, parents who were in recovery. Um, They met in AA. And so uh, I was surrounded by my entire, like from birth till I went to college, basically. I was surrounded by my parents and their friends who were in recovery. And so I watched people go through detox. I was like eight years old and there were people going through detox in my living room um, because my parents would always, you know, bring people in. But so from a very early age, I was like terrified of drugs and I was like terrified. Um, The scared straight. Yeah, scared straight, 100%. Um, It's funny because people, because I'm 37 and people to this day do not believe that I have never tried drugs in my entire life. I'm like, I've never taken a puff of a cigarette. I've never taken a puff of like anything. And no one, no one, because I feel like that's pretty rare. I'm like, no, for real. I really haven't. And I was just yeah. like terrified. Don't to start now. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. At this point in my life, like I was actually joking with my husband yesterday. I was like, who? And it was just something simple. Like I was just like, who's like at this point in their life, you know what I think I'm going to do? Take a marijuana or like, I, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to take up smoking. I think I'm just going to be like, I'm going to go to the gas station and buy a pack of Marlboros. Is that how you say Mar Mar Marlboros. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Marlboros. Ma- I live in North Carolina, so that's probably how somebody said Marlboros. <laughs> anyway, in any event, but but all that to say is, I I saw the very dark side of these things, and I saw my parents' friends relapse. I saw people, you know, come to meetings, you know, and pick up their thirty day chip like more than once, <laughs> you know, many many times, and so and it was always really interesting to witness as a child and to, uh, to see somebody who I had seen, you know, relapse multiple times or whatever, but what was the, what was the thing that finally did it? And more often than not, it was that own person realizing, getting to a point where they realized I need help. 
because more often than not, the the previous times they had come, they'd been like, yeah, I could use some help. But it was really somebody else driving the ship. They had a court yeah. order to attend an AA meeting. A family friend got them to attend an AA, but they didn't necessarily believe in their heart and in their mind and in their soul that they needed help. And it wasn't till, you know, and, and my dad would share this, but like my dad... Uh, who's 78 now. He's been sober 40. Math is hard. Coming up on 45 years, 46 years, something like that. Um, Let's go. Yeah. He's, and he's awesome. Uh, You'd love my dad. He's, he's pretty much the coolest guy ever, but he, um, he shares, you know, he's always shared very openly. Like for him, he didn't realize he needed help until he and my, my sis, my, my sister's my half sister. My, he and my sister's mom had separated he was basically living out of his car and um, this was the the late seventies and he hadn't seen my sister in a while. So he calls up my sister's mom and says, I'd like to see, you know, my daughter. Can I, can I come pick her up? He goes and he picks her up and takes her to an American Legion building for 10 cent beers and she could play pinball. And my dad sat there and this is in like in Northern Virginia and sat there and played my sister played pinball. She was four. He drank 10 cent beers. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up the next morning in a hotel in Richmond, which is like two and a half hours south of Northern Virginia uh, with my sister next to him. And he had no idea how he got there. Scary. And so, yeah. And so it was that 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 was the moment that he looked at his four year old daughter and he said, I could have killed myself and I could have killed her. And he hasn't had a drink since that day. And it, it wasn't that it, before that he did. He knew he needed help. But that was the moment that it was his decision. Um, and so I, I set all of that up to ask you that fifth time that f- that fifth time you were going into rehab or that sixth time, I guess. What was it at that last treatment center? You said it was a faith based tra- treatment center. What was the breakthrough for you? What was the thing that finally was the okay, this I, I gotta I gotta do something here? Yeah, I mean for for me it was actually the day like before I actually admitted into the facility and I was down here in San Diego and a majority of my family's here in San Diego now. And um I had uh kind of like broken into my brother in law and sister in law's house. Mm. Uh, kind of, I had a key, but I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah, they didn't know I had the key. It was a gray area, you know. And, um, so, <laughs> bit of a gray uh, area. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, but I had the day before I'd done something, and you know, I, I had taken a check, and I tried to cash the check in a bank that I had written myself, mm. and uh, you know, my family had found out, and so I'm sitting on this corner where my sober living was, and it was around the it was around the corner from where my sister-in-law lived. And, you know, at the time they were, I was, I actually did, I, you know, I had like 50 something days and um, which is the most amount of time that I'd ever had, you know, in the last up until that point for the last two years. And uh, I'm sitting there and then my, my sister-in-law's husband uh, drives by not knowing where the sober living's at. And I'm standing on the corner with all my bags mm. and, you know, I, I know it's him and he just looks right at me and I go to wave at him and he just, it was like, I wasn't even there. Mm. And at that point, you know, he just kept on going, turned left right past me, didn't look at me, nothing. And, um, at that point it was like, I literally have nothing at this point, mm. you know, family support. They were supporting me as long as I was doing well, 
right? But I have literally burned every single opportunity um, and ruined every opportunity up until that point with the people that loved me, cared for me, and all they wanted to see was me do well. You know, so for me, um, you know, I, I had a resent when I got to the treatment center, you know, I had such a resentment towards, you know, my higher power. And for me, like I didn't want, I did everything. I had an opportunity to go to that treatment center like a year and a half before. And I'm like, faith-based treatment center. I ain't going there. Mm. You know, what, what is God going to do for me? Right. Everything I've done to this point, he has gotten, I've done myself, mm. right? He, he made me short and fat as a kid, right? He's the one that I was, he's the reason why I was getting made fun of, right? He, he basically, uh, I was born into a, you know, a, a lower working class family surrounded by upper class people, right? Like that's God's fault mm. that, you know, uh, socioeconomically, I was getting made fun of as a kid, or I couldn't afford certain things, or I couldn't go do certain things, you know, like this. to me, that was God's fault. So for me, in the humility that I had at that point, like I had literally tried everything. And, you know, my, somebody had told me, they just said, Hey man, like you got to go get on your knees and go pray. And wow. from that day forward, my life has gotten progressively better. And I can 100% say that without a shadow of a doubt that since I started praying, my life got better. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's so interesting how, we can see, even if our stories are different, I mean, obviously, like I said, substance abuse wasn't my issue, but I had also had that, that during that low point of my life, that's those same thoughts of like, this was God's fault. God's the one that took my mom from me. And like, God's the one that like put me, you know, like I was blaming God for all these things that were like either out of my control or of my own doing. And I had to get to that point of, hearing that still small voice of God being like, no, I've, I've been here the whole time. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm reaching out my hand and you just have to grab it. And, um, but it, it involves humility <laughs> and realizing, oh, I do need help. I do need a savior yeah. and I'm not it. <laughs> and yeah. I, I can't do this on my own. Um, <laughs> and it's so powerful to hear from you share your story. And again, because especially I feel like this is a thing that historically has not been an issue, but in the last, I don't know, this is just me spitballing a number, but I feel like 30 years ish, 40 years, it's much more difficult for men to admit they need help or they need, I mean, I mean, maybe you could even trace it back further. Cause I think about, you know, like hearing stories of, you know, my grandfather or, um, you know, who's long since passed away, but, or my husband's grandfather, both, you know, who all who served in World War II were like, when they came back from World War II, like none of them talked at all about mm -hmm. any of it. Like nothing. My dad said, you know, cause my dad was born the day before D-Day. So my dad was born June 5th, 1944. His father, my grandfather was in France, like on D-Day. Yeah. And when he was born. When he when my dad was born. Yeah. My my grandmother gave birth in a hospital by herself, you know, like I mean, she had no way to know if her husband was alive or I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a Zoom call or a FaceTime, <laughs> yeah. you know, while she's in labor. Uh, you know, there yeah. was none of that. Phone, yeah, no, there was none of that, you know, and so she, you know, but my dad said he's like, once my dad came back from from serving in, in the war, my dad's like, he 
did not, he's like, I know nothing. My dad said that everything he's learned about his father's service in World War II, he learned like af- way after my my grandfather had died. Um, and it was because it just men did, did not talk about it. They just didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I, but I feel like we're, we're moving in a direction where it has become, there's a much less of a stigma in talking about these things, of, in talking about your faith and uh, the strength, the importance of uh, your foundational relationship with God and, uh, you know, things like mental health and substance abuse struggles. I feel like we're moving in the right direction. Um, But it's so encouraging to hear somebody like you share your story, share it openly and share it in the hopes that you can help other, help others and and help other men. Um, So when you hit that, that place and you began to pray and you began to seek help and and you began that healing journey, which is, you know, you're never going to arrive. You're, you're always on a, a healing journey. At what point did you kind of feel this call to, I want to help other men. Um, and I want to help others, um, who were in a similar situation. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I mean, if, if you would have told me the five previous treatment centers that I've gone through and then you're, you're telling me that I'm going to work in one work for a <laughs> facility, I, yeah. told you nuts. I, I, I hated those people. I, I hated the people that do what I do. You know, I was angry. Like I said, a lot of resentment, a lot of pride, a lot of ego, I, I thought I was very terminally unique, but at that, you know, at that point, it was like, when I started praying, it was, what do I have to lose? Mm. I've literally, I've already lost everything. You know, I, I don't know. I have nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. And at that point, you know, I, I've been doing very well. Uh, my sponsor at the program that I went through, when you worked there, you had to sponsor the, the clients when you were there. So my sponsor was there. I'd gone through the steps. Like I said, my life praying and doing the steps, my life progressively got better. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't quite gain things back as fast as I wanted to, you know, instant gratification. You know, I, I my family didn't necessarily say, Hey, Mike, you got four months, hold our credit card. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's a little bit more of a process. Like anything, right? like, yeah. You know, you, you, anything, whether it's, you know, going to the gym, whether it's, you know, playing a game, a video game, when you start to see progression, you see motivation, right? It's when you start to see results, you see motivation. So at that point, it was like, this stuff's actually working. I'm beyond human aid at this point. Like I need to do whatever direction God pushes me towards. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got offered a job as a tech making minimum wage. I'm like, well, I'm already on food stamps. What do I got to lose? (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, at that point I, uh, ended up going and working in treatment and, uh, I started as a tech, ended up doing that for about a year and a half, two years. And then, uh, you know, went to the business development marketing side and, you know, just kind of always trying to progress and, and move forward as much as I can to help as many people as I possibly can. also have to ask because you kind of alluded to it and you mentioned it that at the time that you'd hit rock bottom you were going through a divorce but you are still currently married can you share that story yes. because what a powerful testimony that is yeah so uh, my wife and i so i've been with my wife for 15 years wow um been married for well been married for 15 together for 21 wow um so We've been together since we were 15 years old. Oh, um, that's adorable. She, she's well. Yeah. <laughs> she's in recovery as well. You know, she was, 
right alongside me doing doing everything. And mm. at the time, you know, it's her story to tell. But yeah, from my perspective, I was kind of the scapegoat regarding the whole situation. You know, not that I did anything to help, but I, I can't, I couldn't hide it as well as she could. I went to my sixth treatment center. She went to her first. We're going through a divorce. And um, she, at the time, we literally had like one more court date and then it was finalized. And wow. I'm like, just take everything we have when we've had nothing. You know, I'm like, you can have it all. You know, the time we, we've been using together for so long and we she finally gone to treatment the first time I was gone the last time. And it was, she had actually made the decision of like, hey, we've been, we've been so mentally uh messed up towards each other hmm. and it wasn't always like this so let's just put this on hold you know until you know the drugs clear our system and once they clear our system we're going to revisit it and um she went to treatment for four months i went for four months and talking to my sponsor and all this stuff like that it was like we her and i had a meeting we had a dinner and it was like hey like we we've been using together for so long let's find out if we even like each other so hmm. let's live separately for a year we're going to start dating again we're going to, you know, certain rules, like no staying the night at each other's sober livings or houses. You know, it's like when the other person tells you to go home, you have to go home, you know, stuff like that. You're literally starting from the basics again Wow. at 10 years of marriage, you know, which is a totally bizarre and wild idea. You know, so at that point, we it was like around six, seven months. I was really strong in my recovery. She was sober and clean at the time. And my sponsor made this suggestion because I saw some character defects and I'm like, you know, hey, let's once you've complete the steps, then you can move in with me. And so at that point, uh, it was a little bit over a year. It was like a year and three months since she had uh, completed her fourth step at that point and life was going good. Our relationship, we found we like rekindled that love that we originally had, you know, before all this started happening. And um yeah, we've been together, you know, what since and man, I feel like we yeah, could do a whole <laughs> episode with you and your wife just on that because what a powerful, powerful testimony. Um, and mm -hmm. do you guys do you guys have kids? And you, that's if that's too personal of a question, you can say no. no. Okay, no. okay. Um, no, no but, kids. She's got a whole story. I mean, my my, my wife's had like I could be like way low on the number, but I know I'm shooting low. She's had like 37 surgeries. Wow. You know, she's a college athlete. Um, so she's, her addiction is a lot longer than mine. Yeah. So her, her story, she's been an addict since she was like six months old, mm. you know, just because they've been giving her this medic up until, you know, five and a half years ago, she's never been on medication. Wow. Never not been on medication. Yeah. I know what you right mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, but that I'm telling you that is such a powerful and yeah, just because what you did was one necessary, but so hard. I mean, that is so hard. Yeah. And I, it just, you know, somebody could maybe pass it off as, Oh, wow. You guys lived. No, like think, when you really sit and you think about the fact that you you'd been with this person at that time for what 15 years, been married for 10, and you're gonna basically hit the reset button on your relationship. You're gonna live separately, you're gonna date again, you're gonna not spend the night at each other. Like you're gonna re just this this entire like are who are we who who are we married to? Like we have to figure that out again. And that is that yeah. takes so much grit and work and effort. And simultaneously, 
you're in recovery. I mean, like that is just, I, I applaud you. I commend you. Um, and I know that that is not, that it was not without blood, sweat and tears and it was not without prayer. And, uh, but what a testimony to what God can do and what God can restore because I, there is somebody listening. I'm, I'm certain of it. Just law of averages said there is somebody listening (laughs) who this is, this is their story. It might not look exactly the same, but there is somebody listening who they are struggling with substance abuse, their husband or their spouse is struggling with substance abuse, or it could be something else where they feel like they're at a breaking point in their marriage and that they're like, it would just be a whole lot easier if we got a divorce. It would just be easier. Yeah. But that it would have been. It would have been. Yeah, it would have been, you know, for us to just kind of say, okay, cool. Like you go your direction and I go mine, Um, you know, and that's kind of the approach we took is like, let's see if this works out for a year. If after a year we don't like what we see, you know, then we can at least say that we tried. Right. Right. You know, um, for me, I I didn't want to, and and not, not that she obviously, but like my life had gotten so bad that I wasn't, I'm never, I, I was never going back there. Right. You know? So for me, it's like, my sponsor's like, what's the number one most important thing in your life? And I'm like, oh, my marriage, God. And he's like, your recovery, you know? And what's next? Oh, God, what's next? Oh, then, then it's your marriage. You know, he's like, before you make any major decisions in your life, what are the things that you should be asking yourself? Mm. Is it going to affect my recovery? And is it going to affect my marriage? Recovery is first, you know, because if I don't have my recovery, my marriage is over with. Right. Right. Um, and if people in the rooms, they talk about a lot. Whatever you put in front of recovery is the first thing you lose. Mm. So for me, if I didn't put my recovery before my marriage, my marriage is shite anyways. Right. Like there's nothing there. Wow. So, you know, but like everything for me is is recovery is my number one priority. Wow. Well, man, Mike, what a powerful, powerful testimony. And um, I just, again, I just am 100% certain that there is going to be somebody listening who is going to hear this story and just, it's going to give them the, maybe that's just that little extra <laughs> to keep going. Um, yeah. I mean, people, when they hear that part of my story, I mean, they're, they're always like, wow, that's crazy. You know? And I'm like, for me, it's, like realizing it was something different. It was something wild, but it was just something that we did. I just listened to the advice of my sponsor. Yeah. You know, like advice that she listened to from her sponsor, you know what I mean? Like we were so fortunate to have people, you know, guiding us in that aspect, Yeah, you know, cause it's, it's, Two sickies don't make a welly. No, no, you know? no. I have, I have <laughs> yeah, heard right? that phrase. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so work on yourself, you know, and, whatever comes of it comes of it, you know, it's at that point I I had surrendered, you know, and I had seen what God had done in my life at that Mm. point. It's easy decision. Wow. You know, that's easy decision. So you, uh, as you kind of said at the beginning of the the show, you know, you currently work, um, and, and at the mental health center of San Diego, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, if somebody is obviously, local to you and they're listening and they want to either support the work that you guys are doing or what's your word of advice to somebody who is listening who maybe realizes that they they 
they need to get into recovery or they're struggling with mental health, whether it's, um, you know, because this can be a this is a wide spectrum. Trust me, I've seen it as well. <laughs> I know you, you've seen it as well. It's a wide spectrum. You know, you have people who yes. are on one very end of the spectrum and then all the way to just, you know, suicidal ideation. I mean, it's just it can and it can look a lot of different ways. But no matter where you are, whether it's with substance abuse or we're just struggling with mental health or um, whatever, what is your you know, advice to maybe somebody who's local to you who wants to get involved, whether they need to, to get themselves help or they want to, to serve or volunteer um, or just somebody in general who's listening and says, I don't know where to start. Yeah, I think the the important thing is just to pick up the phone, especially now there's so many resources out there and like you're not alone in doing this. Right. Right. I think the, I think the the important thing is realizing it was important for me is realizing that I'm not alone. There's other people that are going through the same things that I'm going through, you know, just, uh, I talked, spoke about being terminally unique earlier, you know, it's like not one person's different than the other, you know, there's somebody that has gone through something that you're going through right now as well. Pick up the phone. I mean, it's, I know it's hard. I, I've been there myself, you know, they have a thousand pound phone. You know, you feel like you're being a burden to somebody. Yeah. Well, you're not, you know, your, your life is more important than that. Um, there are resources for you out there all over the country. You know, one simple Google search, you know, now they have websites and you can go online and fill out an online form. You know, there, there are a lot of ways to, to get access to the treatment, you know, whether it's, you know, private insurance, whether it's county funded, there's a lot of resources out there or state funded, right? There's a lot of resources out there. Um, please, please, please pick up the phone. Mm, man, Mike, this has been so good. And uh, you just, I'm really, really grateful for the work that you're doing and your vulnerability. And again, just advocating for, for people who are either in recovery, need to be in recovery or any stage of the process. Um, it's just Again, having grown up around grownups, <laughs> it is, it is yeah. the work you're, need, you're doing is so, so needed. So thank you for that. Well, now is the portion of the show where at the end where I just get to ask a couple of fun questions. So Mike, uh, I know that you laugh a lot, but what is the last thing that made you just like really belly laugh, cheeks hurt? <laughs> Um, I think when he told me you were a Browns fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We can yeah. end the show right there, Mike. Yeah. Come on. You cut me deep. Yeah, I know it is funny. Um, yeah. So uh, for me, uh, I think there's a few things, right? So my nephew, I got him like a pair of Jordans, right? I, like I got him this pair of Jordans and he was, he didn't really know what they were, right? He's four, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, first pair of Jordans, you know, and he's like, Oh, cool. I got shoes for my birthday. You yeah. Know, he's expecting this toy and he acts all excited. And so like throws his shoe up in the air and trips and falls backward. And he sat on himself. <laughs> like he, he didn't, he had never done that before. It was the first time that he had, you know, the, the met the male parts. <laughs> like yes. the first time he'd ever hit it. Right. Oh, and he no. just and he's like, oh, <laughs> like he didn't know what was going on. Well, now he obviously knows what's going on. And that was like, that's a memory for me that I will I, I'll never forget. As long as I'm alive, as long as he's around, oh. it'll always be. Oh, I love it. I bet you are a funkle. You're the fun uncle, aren't you? Yeah. 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 I, uh, 
Yeah, I get in trouble sometimes. So, but it's uh, hey, it's fine. That's, that's, that's your job. That's <laughs> yeah, that's your job. Okay, to be right. the funkle. Um, I love it. Okay, uh, a little on a little bit more serious note. What's the last thing that made you cry? Yeah, it's kind of um, difficult for me in in doing what I do for work. You get to meet a lot of people, but recently I had you know two really good friends of mine that have passed away mm. almost within literally one one day the other, the next. Oh, I'm and so sorry. Uh, it was somebody who had actually gotten me into treatment and, uh, you know, with, with them being back to back, you know, two important people in my life, you know, it was, it was, uh, that's probably the last time that I cried. I mean, we, unfortunately we, I deal with it on a daily basis, you know, weekly. It's like, seems like you're always, somebody's passing away or somebody didn't get it. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a simple program for complicated people. And, uh, yep. you know, it, it's, uh, I wish it didn't have to be that way, but it's unfortunate, man. Well, I'm so sorry. And, um, yeah, that is, that is one of the really, really difficult parts of this. Um, there's many, many parts of it, but, um, well, yeah. my last question is what is the thing that helps bring you the most joy other than being a fun- um, funkle, obviously? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think like being with family, right? Like being around my family is like the, one of the most gratifying things because five and a half years ago, like I didn't have that, um, you know, for, you know, being present, being there, you know, being able to take my nieces and nephews to the movies, have a sleepover at my house. You know, those are things that like my uncle Rick did for me, you know, and I never thought that I'd be able to do like the life that I have today. Like I didn't think it was achievable. And I know that, people think like that, that's hard to believe. Um, you know, people in recovery will get it, you know, sometimes everyday people are, I'm like, I mean, I was able to buy a home again mm. and my credit score was like 400. It was under 500. Right. Like it, I, I don't get these things. Like I didn't get them overnight, Yeah, you know, but like being able to, um, have that opportunity, you know, to not only be present for my family, provide for my family, you know, and then the other thing is seeing people take time, you know, that I've gotten into treatment, um, you know, that have I've seen put in the work in treatment, seeing them be successful because I know how hard it is. You know, it's yeah. not it's not an easy thing to do. You know, for your dad has 45 years. Yeah. I, I look at like that's something I can only dream of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it's something that's achievable. When I was, when I had one day, I couldn't fathom a year, mm-hmm. yep. you know, like to me, that was an, an unattainable amount of time. Yeah. Um, they say one so, day at a time for a reason. Uh, yeah. Right. Aaron pop says, you know, 45 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm right. longer than I've been alive. Yeah. And he's still, and he still, uh, goes to meetings four or five times a week. So, and he sponsors guys still, uh, you know, at this day at, to this day. So, yeah. um, well, Mike, this has been just phenomenal. Thank you so much. You are, uh, an incredible, incredible human being. And, um, how can people best connect with you if they want to just, you know, connect with you and, and stay in touch? Yeah. So you can go to, uh, MHCSanDiego.com. Um, there's a 1-800 number on there, so you can call that number. There's also information about uh, our facility as well. Um, Instagram, Mike. So at Mike.Gibson69. The 69 was my number. It wasn't like, it was my number from football. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
<laughs> it was my number from football. So um, you can reach out to me via Instagram. Uh, Facebook's a little bit more difficult, but yeah, mhcsandiego.com. You know, like I said, there's a phone number on there. There's a little lady that'll pop up in the corner. So if you want to go in there and type out, type out some information, then you can do that as well. Um, you know, don't be afraid to find out what resources are out there. I think, you know, people will be amazed, um, you know, at, at, at what's out there and what just sticking your hand out for help will do. Mm, man, so good. Thank you so much, Mike. You're awesome. I hope you loved this conversation with Mike as much as I did. Please let us know on social media what you learned or if there was anything that encouraged or inspired you. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod on Instagram and Facebook. And would you head on over to whatever podcast app you are listening to? And would you click that subscribe or follow button and leave us a review and a rating? That really helps the show to grow and helps other people to know what you're liking and how the show could possibly impact them. Thank you as always for listening and being such an incredible, loyal listener. And thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing this show. Now this week, I hope something makes you laugh till you cry. See you next week. Bye.